Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our session, Career Services for Non-Academic Careers. Um, this session is sponsored by the Applied Religious Studies Committee, of which I am a member and the incoming chair. Um, I want to thank the current chair, who's not here right now, um, Dr. Christine Hutchinson-Jones, for her dedication, passion, and drive to make AR recognize uh, Applied Religious Studies and the importance of this work. Um, my name is Amy Defball, and I'm the Director of Graduate Affairs for the College of Liberal Arts at Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, in this position, um, I oversee 18 master's programs and 14 doctoral programs in the humanities and social sciences. Um, this is the third year of this session, um, and I feel really privileged uh, that I've been a part of uh, this session for all three years, um, and I'm constantly learning, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, just a sort of programming note, this session will be recorded and will be available um, on the AAR SoundCloud and iTunes in a few weeks, I hope. Um, definitely by the new year, I hope. <laughs> um, this is one of the most listened to sessions the last year and the year before. Um, we will have a good chunk of time for Q&A um, and audience discussion, so please keep in mind that the session is being recorded um, and just as, you know, um, I understand there may be some hesitation and reservation in exploring this sort of um, these sorts of questions um, for many different reasons, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but if you want to ask a question and don't necessarily want to want to identify yourself because the session is being recorded, that's totally okay. Um, as someone who told their, when they told their advisor that they were leaving the academy and she got very upset with me, I totally, I definitely, we definitely understand the hesitation that uh, folks might have. So, um, for the audience today and those listening at home later on, I just want to read the description of the, the session. Um, it goes something like this. When human, humanity scholars talk about exploring and pursuing quote-unquote alt-ac or post-ac uh, careers, two concerns often dominate the conversation. One, graduate studies in humanities don't prepare us for or aren't relevant to non-academic career paths. And two, we don't know where to look or how to apply for non-academic jobs. Whether you are a scholar thinking about non-academic careers or a faculty member interested in supporting students engaged in such searches, um, we really encourage you to join the career services experts to discuss the many careers that are open to and are even looking for people with advanced training in the humanities. Um, we'll discuss existing resources and where to find them, as well as ways that departments, universities, and professional organizations like AAR can better support scholars in non-academic careers. The, uh, the structure of this session will be relatively informal and conversational. I have some prompts and questions that I'll ask the panelists. Um, and we, we're, we're short one panelist right now, so I think I'll, I'll join in those discussions as well. Um, but again, we will spend a large chunk of time engaging with you all here and answering questions that you might have. That is why we're here. So, and now to introduce our expert career services panel. Um, so on my far left is Dr. Marin Wood. Um, her PhD is from, um, in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is the co-founder of Beyond the Professoriate, a mission-driven uh, organization that provides career education and professional development for graduate students and PhDs. Beyond Prof. Uh, provide services to individuals and partner and partners with institutions to support their efforts in empowering students and postdocs to leverage their education wherever smart people are needed. In online webinars, on-demand videos, blogs, and online community, Beyond Prof features PhDs with successful careers who share their unique ex expertise and 
and experiences to support graduate students in their job search and future employment. Beyond the Professoriate is career advice for PhD, by PhDs for PhDs. Marin has been a lead researcher for several important studies on the academic and non-academic job market for humanities and social science PhDs, working for the American Historical Association and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Her writing has appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, and University Affairs. Her essay, quote, How to Move Beyond the Professoriate, is part of the edited collection Succeeding Outside of the Academy, published this fall by the University of Kansas Press. And directly to my left is uh, Dr. Julia Hoffman. She is the Associate Director of Graduate Career Development in the Career Center at UC San Diego. Um, where she provides career counseling to masters and PhD students and works with staff, students, and faculty to deliver career planning workshops and related programming. Her, she received her PhD in English from UC Riverside in 2014, which is where she first became interested in working with graduate students to expand awareness of the diversity of career options available to them, as well as how to prepare for life after grad school. So thank you both for being here. Um, I think I want to get started. I, you know, I gave those introductions, bios that you had given me, but I would love for you to sort of tell your story um, because it is, this sort of exploration is very individual and specific to the individual and I would just, I think it would be great for you all to tell your story, how you ended up where you are, what made you choose to sort of leave the academy for a more career-oriented um, giving advice for current PhD students. So whoever wants to start is fine. Probably put that off, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> so hi everybody. Um, oh, it is, okay, just a little quiet, okay, great. Um, so hi again, I'm Julia Hoffman. Um, so just to tell a little bit about my story, I, um, when I, like so many PhD students I see, when I had started my uh, program in English literature at, at UC Riverside, um, I had all the dreams of I would become a professor and, you know, everything, uh, it felt very, um, you know, the path seemed very laid out in front of me. Um, I, you know, admittedly, I'd done a lot of research on programs I'd wanted to go into. Um, I, I hadn't thought so far forward as the actual job market, and so when I learned about um, the job numbers, especially for um, for uh, those in Victorian literature, which which I ended up going into, um, that I re I realized things were not going to be as rosy as I had, had realized. Um, and about the same time, I also was starting to consider. This was a few years into my program. I was starting to consider um, that the things I liked best about the work I was doing as a grad student um, and the things I uh, was learning didn't appeal to me so much they were kind of in reverse in terms of match up to the actual uh, role of becoming a professor. So what I might mean by that is um, I, I loved teaching, um, particularly I loved office hours. You know, I could talk for hours with students about their career dreams or things going on in their lives, um, you know, ge general professional development, time management, um, just advice generally. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, um, learning to kind of learning my scholarly identity and what, what it meant to write, you know, academically, um, I, it just feared me, it filled me with this dread and kind of, <laughs> I, I ended up detesting the process much more than I think is, is you know, recommended for <laughs> wanting to become a professor. I mean, I know everybody says writing is hard, but it was like almost physically painful at certain points. 
Um, and I realized, you know, obviously, if you're going to become a professor in English literature, even if the job numbers somehow worked out in my favor and some miracle happened, um, I was actually going to really hate doing the work that <laughs> that would be rewarded through the tenure process and the things I love to doing, like office hours. That's not you don't really get credit for that. You know, teaching um, generally maybe at a community college, but but even even then, I like the individual setting more. Um, so all this really came to a head um, the year I was supposed to start thinking about going on the job market. So that was about a year into my dissertation. Um, that was the summer I was supposed to write my job materials. And um, I kept hearing in the back of my head my um, advisor's voice saying, when you write your, your cover letter, when you write your materials, you can't fake the passion. Like, it has to be genuine. And um, here I was, like, very clearly going to be faking this passion. <laughs> I, I didn't even know how to conjure that. Um, and so I s secretly started doing this uh, kind of, is almost like an, another dissertation project, figuring out what else is out there, how would I even get started, um, and, and getting really into this deep dive and like graduate education as a whole and, and what is it that they're preparing us for. And um, I, I felt like I couldn't really talk to a lot of people in my department about this except for a few other PhD students where we kind of had these like confessional sessions of you know potentially being interested in things beyond R1 um, careers. Um, and so during that time, um, I discovered things like beyond the professoriate. Um, there's, I think that that year that I started really considering this, they had their, their first online conference. Um, there are other things like humanists at work through the UC Humanities Research Institute. Um, and kind of started putting together you know, what, it, what I might look into. Um, and through that, discovered I liked student services, student advising, um, and it really wasn't until many informational interviews later um, that I discovered I really liked uh, graduate student career advising, in fact, and that, that what I had been doing, um, the whole career research and putting together panels at my, you know, just kind of on a vol volunteer basis, um, and, you know, people helping people with their resume and all those kinds of things that kind of struck me much later, in fact, about almost a year after I finished, that that was something people get paid for. So um, I ended up working a little bit in the graduate division at UC Riverside, um, doing some program management there, really liked that, and during that year I discovered, you know, this was the kind of thing that I ended up wanting, wanting to do, um, and very luckily found, you know, the UC San Diego was hiring at around the same time, and. Um, and landed here, and so um, that was, you know, lots of um, what is it, planned happenstance, I suppose. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that was that's my story. Thank you so much. Um, I'm I'm always so excited to hear that like people came to our conference and it helped them. <laughs> we often just like see online names or profiles and we never actually get to have that um, validation. So that's awesome to know that you came. Um, I'm gonna show a little bit about um, a new resource that the American Academy of Religion has subscribed to for its members, something that we've put together Beyond Prof. So I'll get to that in a minute. But how I came to, to Beyond Prof was, was I, very similarly, I, so I did my PhD at Carolina, which is a top 10 program in history, and in early America, it's, I think, a top five. So there was really no conversation when I was doing my graduate studies about what you did if you didn't get to be faculty, um, and if you didn't want to be faculty, like, I don't even know what that would have looked like in our department. It's changed now, um, and they've been very forth, and I, so I want to acknowledge that. It's, it's different now. But when I was there, there was no conversations about what else you would do. Because, uh, and, and I've done the research for the department, and you know, when I was doing my PhD, 70 to 80% of Carolina and Duke PhDs were getting jobs. At, you know, so it wasn't 
wrong of them to be focusing on that because that's where students, why students were coming to their program and they were successful at getting them jobs. Um, but I finished in 2009, um, so that was awesome, and the job market completely collapsed. And, um, you know, at that time, I think a lot of faculty, again, were, were had, like, the idea that this was here to stay hadn't really settled in. You know, it was maybe it was going to be, like, you know. So it was just, like, hang in there, and, you know, and the department was very good about, uh, you know, trying to get us teaching and finding the support because they, there was sort of a belief that, you know, this is due to an economy, uh, economic collapse. And, and, of course, what has since come out, especially the work that people like Rob Townsend has done, is that the collapse of the job market also coincide with, you know, the end of hiring for millennials. Like, millennials were going, you know, th that wave. People had already staffed up and hired up. And that the people that had been, you know, there are actually not a lot of baby boomers in the academy. The bubble is actually people that were hired to teach baby boomers people that were hired in the 60s, and they had actually retired in the late 90s and early 2000s. So this decline in the job market was coming, and it's one of the reasons why it's intensified. And that was like not really understood. So I you know, did the adjunct thing, I tried to publish, I was on the job market for three years, and um, at the end of the third year, I just really hit a wall, because I was, I was researching and writing, I was getting out vacation time, I was stressed, I was miserable, I was anxious, my, my partner, um, was sort of treading water, doing consulting in Durham, North Carolina, trying to figure out what's coming next. And it just really got to a point where this was unsustainable. Like, <laughs> someone had to get a full-time job. Um, and he has an MBA from Duke, and so that was him, you know. He put out some applications and got an opportunity in D.C. And at the same time, I'd come in second for a 4-4 teaching load, a visiting assistant professor that they told me was not, they were not able to pay me enough to live in the city where I was going to be teaching. And I came in second, right? Like, that's the most important thing. Like, I didn't even get it. <laughs> And I remember going down to my, um, uh, one of the women in the department who'd been a, a, a mentor, and I was just saying, you know, like, I can't do this anymore. And she said, well, but you were so close. And I was like, for what? <laughs> like, what am I doing? And I had no plan. I had no, like, I had no idea what I was going to do next. I just knew that I couldn't do this anymore. Like, I just was so emotionally, mentally exhausted and done. So I moved to Washington, D.C., and um, was incredibly depressed, drank a lot of red wine. Uh, you know, not day, day drinking, but by five o'clock, that was time, watching a lot of Downton Abbey reruns and feeling very miserable, very lost. And I had, I was so ill-equipped, you know, like some of the questions that Julia was just talking about, you know, her self-reflection, like I hadn't done any of that. Um, I had gone through my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD, I was, you know, won awards, was fully funded, top program, like it had never occurred to me that this dream of being a faculty was not going to pan out, and no one had ever actually said the words, like, hey, this might not work out for you. So I just, and uh, in hindsight, you know, I'd grown up in a small rural town, and I didn't know a lot of, like, professionals, and even some of the jobs, you know, you're talking about frontiers for humanistic research, like some of the jobs that people are getting now in content marketing and marketing and online research and UX research and the things that we see humanities and social science PhDs moving into, like they didn't really exist, and I certainly didn't know marketers, you know, I knew school teachers and dentists and doctors. So when I arrived to do my undergraduate and I met faculty and they like thought thoughts and had books and what I actually wanted was a middle-class lifestyle, and I didn't recognize that until much later. But the first sort of example of that lifestyle was faculty, and, and I was bright, and they encouraged me. And, and so part of the problem is that I just really lacked imagination about what other kinds of opportunities were available in the creative economy for people like me. And fast forward you know, to the work we're doing now. Um, 
I should have ended up in this space a lot fast, like a lot sooner. And that's sort of what I regret. I, I love being an entrepreneur. Like it's terrifying and I often don't get paid because I'm dumping all the money into an organization and trying to pay other people. Um, so there's a lot of risk involved, but it's very exciting. You know, it's very exciting to, and very fast paced. And going back to the, you know, what you were saying, I hated the archives. <laughs> I, so that should have been a sign that I probably wasn't going to be a good scholar. Um, and what I was really interested in was like storytelling and narrative. And my research was uh, was about um, representations of sex in early American print culture. And what I'm actually interested in is, is that idea of storytelling and the way that we tell stories and the way that we communicate with others and the way in which we pull stories from culture in order to understand ourselves. And a lot of the work that we do at Beyond Prof is, is this. It's helping people tell positive stories about earning PhDs and communicating and leveraging their skill set to other people. And then of course a lot of the work that I do now is actually marketing, sales, communication, um, customer success, customer support, and that's all about like listening, problem solving, hearing information, contextualizing it, coming up with strategies, implementing those strategies. And the fun thing about being in charge of an organization is that, you know, if I have an idea on Tuesday, we can kind of come up with a plan to implement it on Thursday and then do it on Monday and see what happens. And, you know, when I hear my colleagues at the GCC talking about, you know, your 14-year <laughs> <laughs> committees, I think, oh, man, I could never go back into higher ed. That's hard. I gotta, you know, we just kind of vote as a team and come up with a plan and implement it and then see what we learn. And if it doesn't work, that, you know, we pivot or optimize. And, you know, the, the startup space is very fun. And the last thing I'm going to say about the startup space, which has been very, um, I think healing is the right word, is that it's okay to fail as an entrepreneur so long as you're learning. And like when you talk to entrepreneurs about like, you know, 80% of startups fail, but that doesn't make it your failure. And so you see people that are doing these really cool creative things that are flipping out of organizations and, and the fact that it doesn't succeed doesn't, isn't a penalty. You know, they get picked up by other startups and then they get picked up by other startups. And you know, a friend of mine, one of the startups he worked at was acquired by Google. Then he went to Google for a while, and that was boring, so now he's back in another startup. So you, this, for me, it was such a, a, again, healing experience going to these startup events, feeling like, oh, you know, you can take risks, and you can challenge yourself, and you can do things that are scary, and that's okay in this space. And failure is okay so long as you're learning. And it's not your failure, it's just like, you know, the market didn't support that idea, so whatever. Um, and so that's been a really fun piece of startup culture for me. Great, thank you. I, um, so I've been, so this panel has, the session has happened for the last three years and we've, you know, for the past three years, we've called it career services for non-academic careers. And I've been thinking a lot about this terminology. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, before we get into, you know, learning about particular resources or particular like action items that people can do and institutions can do to support this sort of exploration, I'm wondering if we can sort of trouble, <laughs> to use a very <laughs> academic term, <laughs> if we could trouble the, the terminology that we're using here. Because I think, Julia, you mentioned scholarly identity and Marin, you're sort of talking about how, you know, what you were doing in your research has kind of you know expanded and has really helped your entrepreneurial you know um, undertakings so I'm wondering you know and I think a lot of you know when I talk to graduate students one of their primary concerns is that they're giving up their scholarly identity that they've spent seven eight nine years however long they've been in you know graduate school um, working towards that PhD that they're somehow giving that up 
And I'm wondering, and I don't know if other people in the room feel this way, but I struggled with that myself um, in, in making the very conscious choice not to go on the faculty job market and continue to do. And I, I think I have managed to sort of, you know, uh, straddle the line between, you know, academic and non, quote unquote, non-academic. But I'm just wondering, like, what do you think of this terminology? What do you think could be a better terminology? What do you think about, you know, people like, what would, what would, what would you say to grad students who really are concerned about giving up that, that scholarly identity that they've cultivated for years, that they've dedicated their lives to, potentially gone into poverty for, and taken out tons of student loan debt for? You know, what, what, can, we, what can we tell those students? <laughs> it's okay to be real. It's very okay to be real. <laughs> I, I think so. This discussion about non-academic definitely, um, yeah, I think it's 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 definitely time for a title change. If, you know, if that's possible. <clears throat> um, I know that things you know get reiterated. It's definitely happening yes. next year. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because um, I increasingly. Um, especially for my students in the humanities and social sciences, um, their non-academic, you know, quote-unquote non-academic career looks pretty academic. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, not, you know, obviously it's like they're not necessarily being placed in the kind of tenure-track um, roles that they, they don't, they're not interested in anymore. Um, but I see them doing things in digital humanities. Um, I, see, I see a lot of them continuing some germ of their, their research and or their teaching in different forms. And a lot of that, is, you know, it's true, it does take place still within higher education, um, but it doesn't have to. I mean, I, I do see people, you know, working in some kind of a communications related role in, in, at Google and doing research-based work there. Um, but I do see a, a lot who, they're still fascinated by questions, um, you know, about maybe storytelling, as you said, or, um, or, how people learn, and, and maybe I see them working at, at our campus in the teaching and learning commons and, and training teachers and, and really doing exceptional research about the best way people learn. Um, and it's like, if they hadn't, if they hadn't been trained researchers um, and then applied that to their work, there would, it would be so much, there's, there's just so much richness they bring to those positions because of um, that work, and I know, <coughs> Even in my own work, um, I, I feel like I, my own training in research, and you know, obviously it's not Victorian literature <laughs> research anymore, but the skills I learned in researching, even just you know, determining what's a credible source, um, even the, you know, how to parse through the quick Google search you do because you have an appointment in two minutes, but you, want, you, know, you wanna find that one particular thing. Um, I, find, I, I see that sometimes um, I'll get questions from colleagues about things that, um, you know, I, I it, later I, I think, oh, why was that an issue? And I realize, oh, I, I'm able to parse through that because there's some kind of research trick I, I learned that obviously wasn't training me to become a career counselor, but was training me how to pinpoint information that people need and how to think about it critically. Um, so whatever way I see people end, end up or, or how they apply that, their, their fascination, um, it could be, you know, directly related. I, I for example, um, uh, Kelly at the um, uh, Kelly Kelly and Brown at the UC Humanities Research Institution. Um, she is um, you know using her literature 
PhD, I, mean, I imagine at least every day, you know, um, with, with the kind of work she's doing, and it is very research-based, so it could be closely connected in that way, but um, also further afield. Um, I think it's just a matter of really considering what, what it is that, what kinds of things really brought you there, and um, trying to, you know, decouple that from the, from the specific contents, if that's not an option, you know, if you're not going to be able to, to go into something that was based on your dissertation, you know, um, but, but what kinds of ways are you doing that research? What, how does that appeal to you or the, the teaching, you know, whatever it is, what, what about the way you're doing that work that appeals to you? Um, how might that translate into other contexts? So I think a, a lot of that, you know, is just, just something to kind of really be, be self-aware about essentially or, or try to get there. Um, but yeah, going back to non-academic, I don't, I, it's something that, 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 gets me every time I'm trying to think of a panel title or <coughs> we have an event for, you know, something for PhD students and um, I don't want to call it non, it's not non-academic, it's, you know, but then you say, careers beyond the tenure, tri it's just, the titles get longer and longer, you know, like you can really, really parse out specifically what this means or what it doesn't mean. So I don't know that we've necessarily found a good replacement term yet, alt-ac, it's not really alternative mm -hmm. because we are, we are, in fact, there are many more people don't go into tenure track roles than, than do go into tenure track roles. So it's not really the alternative. We haven't really figured out what that is and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we get there soon. So at Beyond Prof, we've adopted professional, mm -hmm. that there are professional careers and the reason why we've adopted that is like that's actually what they're called, right? Like these are degrees for, like these jobs are jobs that people have with sometimes with advanced degrees and sometimes not. Like the PhD is not the thing that's gonna get you the job. Um, it's the, all of the skills that you've just unpacked, right? And so are, are things that are gonna get you the job. But the people that we interview at Beyond Prof, and we've interviewed like, you know, over, like over 300 PhDs just in the last two years. Even in, uh, even in STEM disciplines, many, many people are just moving into jobs that require smart, creative people that are problem solvers and researchers and writers and communicators. And the reason why like, that they move there is because those are, you know, we call them transferable skills, but they're transferable precisely because other people have them. And they have them in these professional jobs where PhDs are moving. So we set it up as like, you can have a faculty career or you can have a professional career and we're professionals. Um, and that means that you're an advanced, you know, there's a lot of things that goes on with that. And it's not to say that faculty aren't professionals, it's just that a faculty job market is, you know, faculty careers are very different and they operate very different. And there's so much more similarities between, you know, your work in the academy and the fluidity of moving within, and, uh, you know, within organizations, outside of organizations, uh, between uh, your position and then maybe moving into like, you know, recruiting or HR or moving to make, like those kind of fluidities exist in a professional space. It's very different from a faculty career. So that's what we've, what we, and, and the skill sets that we adopt or the skills, the, the strategies that we have to adopt when we begin to um, look for, for other kinds of careers other than faculty are the same as other professionals. You have to network, you have to tell a good story, you have to have a professional resume. And so that's why we've adopted that. It's just like, you're gonna get a job as a professional and that's great. And so to go back to what um, your question was, um, I'm not a scholar and that has to be okay. And that's a hard thing to hear. But I think to go back, um, you know, I'm not like, and this is not like an ethnic identity, it's not a nationality, it's not like a minority status, like this is not, this is like something that you did and it's a great accomplishment. But I think that one of the challenges that we have in the academy is that, um, 
there's sort of an uh, <laughs> I hope I'm not gonna get into trouble for this <laughs> there's kind of an arrogance behind it right there's sort of a sense of superiority that like we're the only people that are doing these sort of smart interesting creative things and that's just not true and so if you think about what the fear is by like oh I have to be an academic or non-academic first of all it's sort of elevating this from outside of other kinds of professional careers as though it's better or more superior and it's not it's just one aspect of what you know we and then we have to talk about it that way right it cannot be a superior career path it cannot be better than other professionals and the second thing is like what does it mean right what does it mean what are you trying to hold on to and it's like well the concern is that you won't think thoughts that you won't be around smart people that you won't be engaged in your work that your work won't be rewarding or meaningful and that's where these informational interviews and all the interviews that we do at beyond proper so important because you know, I just interviewed a woman, Pin Yuan, who's a historian. She had a tenure track job. She didn't, she was unhappy. Like she felt like she had reached sort of what she wanted to accomplish with her as historical career. You know, she'd published and she was, she just was, you know, burnt out, I guess, which happens. And so she quit her job as a tenured, tenured professor, um, moved to Seattle um, where she wanted to live because she was in a small Midwestern town where her and her partner were the only like um, Chinese people. And that was not, conducive to how they wanted to live. So we moved to Seattle. She freelanced for a year. Um, and what she now does is she does uh, translations and localization. And she goes in and for a video game company. Like Pinyuan never played a video game ever in her entire life. But, and, and she's, she was a scholar of medieval French women or early modern French women. But what she's leveraging is her, actually her Chinese to English translation and localization. So it's not actually her academic expertise, but her ability to do research and ask questions were things that were valuable. And now she goes on to, she says that her, the interactions she has now with her colleagues are even more stimulating because she's not in an office as a historian. So she goes into a floor and she works with a team. And when she goes into her office, she hears 17 different languages being spoken. And she's working with engineers as well as like teachers and other localization and translation specialists. But she's so intellectually engaged and stimulated by that work. And like, who would have thought that a historian of early modern women would end up doing Chinese localization and translation for a video game company in Seattle? And the other thing that I want to just point on is that one of the challenges that we have is that 80% of humanities PhDs will end up and stay in the academy, partly because we lack the imagination of other places that we go, what we can go. And the problem is like when we're touting these skills and the humanities PhDs as valuable to industry, we have very little evidence of that because we don't actually leave higher ed. And so I think that they are incredibly valuable, but they're just not valuable in the ways that we want them to because we do have to leave behind the safety of the university, the reward of having a PhD. We have to set that aside, think of ourselves as researchers, as scholars, as thinkers, as movers and shakers and innovators, and, and then move into these for-profit companies where we can do a lot of good and where we can um, make actually a lot of money. And the other problem too is that so many people in the humanities have such a bias against um, industry. You know, that businesses are all out to get you, that, you know, that, and the thing I always like to say, and this is of course my politics, is like, you know, the NRA is a nonprofit. Beyond profit is for profit. Like, the dividing line between good and bad is not whether it's for-profit or non-profit. It's what the organization is doing and who's doing it and whether or not you align with that organization. 
Your local coffee shop is a for-profit company. So really, we need to push back on those assumptions that academics have about the nature of business, the nature of industry, the, the superiority of higher ed, the importance of scholarly identity, and say, like, well, what are we doing? We're, like, we're not even taking all of this richness, all of the things you've said, and moving them into outside of higher ed where we can make a difference and take this knowledge and integrate it. You know, diversity, uh, inclusion, um, in and around issues of like race, gender, sexual orientation, like they are hot topics in industry. Tech has figured out that they have a race and gender problem. And what they're looking for is human-centered, you know, human-centered researchers who can help them solve the problem of the fact that like they're developing racist apps because everyone in the room are like, you know, white engineers. <laughs> and it's a problem. And there's a lot of really exciting opportunities for people in the humanities to leave higher ed, but you gotta shed that academic identity and it's okay. So I'm gonna, I'm, no I'm rambling, but just to go back, to build on what my colleagues have been saying, the question isn't what you can do with your degree. The question is why did you get it in the first place? What, because you're not a PhD, you're a person who has an advanced degree and you got that advanced degree because you had certain motivators, interests, talents, and that's what drove you to do these things and that's actually your hook. That's what, you know, we focus a lot on skills that people have and where they go, but what's so much more important when you're getting started is to really look for that hook because that's what's gonna move you through your uh, career is that opportunity to, you know, help others do one-on-one, -on -one, that kind of work. And that's where we need to spend a lot more time talking about, like, what energizes you about the work that you're doing and then where else can you do that? Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, so I would imagine that most people in this room um, are sort of exploring or thinking about these questions. Um, so getting down to sort of nitty gritty, very practical, um, you know, sort of advice um, from our career experts here, what general resources would you recommend to students seeking opportunities outside the academy? So I'm thinking of professional development, you know, and of basic things like networking sites, opportunities, yeah. um, networking sites, um, places to apply or look for jobs. I think a, a, a lot of my grad students, um, you know, they come to me and say, I don't even know where to start looking for not, you know, quote unquote, non-academic jobs. And sorry, we keep using that language. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you know, from the career experts, what what would you recommend where to start and you know how to do, you know, we're all researchers, so how would we do an in-depth research about, you know, finding these resources? So so I'll start by talking a little bit about Imagine PhD. Um, this is really where I, I say for especially humanities and social sciences students, but I'll I'll talk a minute, little bit in a minute about why I actually I recommend it to all students. Um, <clears throat> this is really where I recommend that they start, uh, especially if you're still at this, you're still really trying to figure out what is it that drives you, what motivates you, what got you here in the first place. Um, Imagine PhD has a ton of resources, so where it's particularly helpful to humanities and social sciences students is um, the assessments. So you have an interests assessment, skills, and values. Um, <clears throat> I think it's important to do all three, so sometimes people ask, like, should I just do the interests? Um, what I often say to them is interest and skills might get you to apply for and get the job. Um, the values is really what's going to get you to kind of stay in that job or want to move to a different job. So values is really, really connected to um, that through line that Marin's talking about <coughs> in terms of your, your, your career path, really, like what's, what's motivating you. 
Um, and how does that align with or not align with the organizations you're, you're applying for? Um, so I, I always recommend starting with that. That being said, um, assessments are not the be-all, end-all. I think, um, and I know definitely this happened for me. I, I took, before Mass and PhD existed, um, I, I took, you know, Myers-Briggs and whatever other assessments there were, um, and I wanted this, like, the answer, right? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this test, and the test will give me the answer, and I'll know exactly that I wanna go into career advisor for grad students. There's no such assessment that does that for you. <laughs> you know, I just wanna, like, break, break that, um, that idea. Um, it, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing that will get you that to that specific answer, and even if it does, I mean, there is this thing called the strong interest inventory. The problem with that is that it's overly specific in like all the wrong ways. <laughs> so people will, will have PhDs, we used to have them take that before, imagine PhD existed in, in my ADP, and um, it would come up with like forest manager, and people were like, well, I mean, I like being outside, but that's pretty, <laughs> why am I getting a PhD in oceanography for, you know? Um, so there's really, there, you're either gonna get something seriously mismatched or overly general. So sometimes people think about Mads and PhD as a little overly general. Um, what it does is it points you toward job families that, you know, kind of industries, general industries that are, would be of interest, that align with your interests and your skills and values. Um, but it doesn't say, oh, and therefore you should be a, you know, UX UI designer within Google or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, it's going to say, take a look at and start thinking about and investigating and then going on informational interviews, talking to people within maybe, you know, the job family of higher administration um, or human services. Um, what I do like is that there's still faculty there because yes, people are still interested in faculty careers. Um, maybe it's gonna be a different kind of faculty career or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that comes up. Um, it gives a ton of resources for one, um, you know, exploring that profession, so figuring out um, who, are, who are the people who make up this profession? It gives example stories of, of PhDs who've gone into that. Um, then it gives organizations that are helpful to connect to. Um, and that's really where I, I emphasize for people to, um, to do that. Basically, where people think assessments will give them that answer, it's actually the informational interviews that tend to get you there, but not immediately. It's gonna be really circuitous. So um, I always recommend you know, looking at that thing where it says, um, you know, the, the connections, building connections, thinking about people you know who might be in some of those job families that are of interest to you, talking to them and figuring out what is it that you like about their role, what is it that you don't like about their role, um, where can you find people who you, where, you know, they're doing something that you like more rather than the thing you like less, um, and asking the people you're talking to to connect you to those other people. So it's really not gonna be that first line of people you talk to, it's gonna be the second la layer, third, fourth, so on. It's gonna be pretty circuitous, but then it actually becomes more efficient. Um, and it gets you to those answers much more than taking online assessments. Um, anyway, so then there are also, you know, if you do wanna, you end up being interested in exploring that further, you can go to the build skills section that um, Imagine PhD gives some kind of demos that you can do. Um, you can build skills in other ways too. I think it's important to recognize the skills that you do have that are transferable. So really being, being aware that you know, um, you're not starting all over again necessarily. Technical skills can be learned pretty quickly, especially at, at this level in, you know, in, in many respects. Um, but often employers are saying they're looking for the, the soft skills. They're looking for the problem solving. They're looking for communication skills, leadership skills. Um, time and time again, employers come to us and say, we can train our, we can train your students on the job in whatever, you know, uh, whatever technical skill to, to a large extent, 
um, what we can't train them in is professionalism or you know smooth communication skills, um, taking the lead on things, working independently. So really consider all of those skills you are learning. Um, maybe you're not coding in Java, but you are taking the lead on projects or um, negotiating effectively with other team members or people you've worked with on organizing conferences. So just really being aware of all those skills. Um, and then, you know, um, going back to P Imagine PhD, once you are getting a sense of what kinds of things you'd like to apply for, they have a lot of good resources under the general resources link um, where you can look at how to informational interview, for example. If you've never done one of those, it gives this really extensive um, talk through of what is one, how do you even, how do you reach out to somebody you don't know but you know you want to talk to them, um, what questions do you ask. It gives you examples um, of cover letters, uh, it gives you a kind of talk through of that and what they might look like, how you t tailor it to job ads. Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll talk about a little bit is under my plan, um, this is helpful for really anybody. Um, you can set your own goals and what I really like is set your reminders because of course we all know we have like 5,000 you know, things we need to do. If you're trying to remember what to do between now and filing you know, and defending, um, this is the plan for you because you can set up every minute thing that you don't want to forget. Like, remember to format this thing. Remember to get this, you know, when the, I want to go to this conference. Remember to get this abstract in by this one day. Oh, um, I want to apply for a fellowship to support my dissertation writing next year. And I know every year it comes out in January, but, you know, it's not this year that I'm going to apply. Okay, you can remind yourself so that next January you're looking for this deadline. So basically, you know, use all of this to the most extent that you can. Um, and Imagine PhD is free. All you have to do is just go to imaginephd.com, set up your account, it's, it's free to everybody. Um, generally speaking, I always, that's, this is really my go-to that I recommend for, for humanities and social sciences paired with the informational interviews. Because this will get you to, you know, pretty far, but it's not gonna get you necessarily to those specific, oh, this is the title that I'm applying for when I'm, I'm applying for roles. Oh. Um, this company, you know, would really, like this company really values X, Y, Z, and I should highlight my, how my skills dovetail with that compared to this smaller company that's more interested in blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, I should be asking for this amount based on my skills and experience when I'm negotiating. So all those kinds of, you know, more detailed questions, that's really where the informational interviews are going to come into play um, and, and helping you kind of navigate those more specific more specific questions you might have. So I know Mary left. I'll just do a few quick slides. Oh, this was from my presentation the other day, um, which uh, let me just, I'm not going to play the whole thing. But, um, you know, we've interviewed about 250 PhDs in the last about year and a half. You know, and, and this is where people work, just to build on what Julia's saying. Like, there's no list, right? Like, it's supposed to be overwhelming, right? It's supposed to be like, wow, there's lots of people on there. You know, oftentimes, you know, people are saying, you know, what can I, where can I find jobs for PhDs? And it's like, well, wherever smart people work is where a person can find a job, right? And it's very, very individual. So like, you know, we, there's no, you know, there's no job board, there's no like PhD appropriate careers or any of that nonsense that you might read. Like, that's just not true and that's not how it works. And just to build on what Julia is saying, you, you really have to, like, whether it's the community that you're currently living in or whether it's a city you want to move to, Again, going back to the, like why we call it professional careers, this is how professionals find jobs. Like you don't have to do a national job search to find a career unless you're trying to like be the director of a museum and then maybe. But for most of us when we're starting out, it's really where you live, who you got, who you know, and who you can get to know. 
Um, and just to use an example of like, you know, even people who have technical skills that they're leveraging, like my, you know, my partner, when he, when, when he wanted to get into consulting, the person that hired him was a woman who ran a consulting agency in DC, and he'd built her deck years earlier. And she was like, oh, I remember Martin. Yeah, he was like, awesome. I'll just bring him in for an interview. It had nothing to do with consulting. It's just that personal connection. And the reason is people hire people. They hire people they know. They hire people that they can get to know. They hire people who come to them from a referred connection. And so like, if you're spending all your time writing resumes and submitting them to online jobs you're finding online, like you're doing your job search so backwards and so wrong, and you will not get a job, right? We often hear like people won't hire me because I have a PhD and it's like, it's true. They won't hire you because you have a PhD. They'll hire you because you solve specific problems within an organization. So it's not that they won't hire you because you have a PhD. It's just that they also won't hire you because they have a PhD, you have a PhD. So there's some nuance to that challenge. And then the other thing I was just gonna pull up here real quick is um, just to bring up, you know, in interviews that employers tell us and this comes from the University, uh, University Association of University Professors. They've done surveys. This is mostly focusing on undergraduates, but this is what they're, this is, these are the values that employers tell universities they're looking for. And the great news is like you have those, right? So I'm gonna read them because this is being recorded, but they're looking for written and oral communication, teamwork skills, critical thinking, analytical reasoning, complex problem solving, information literacy, innovation and creativity, technological skills, and qualitative reasoning. So that's good news, right? Um, and then the other thing they tell us is they don't really care what your degree is in, right? They're looking for skills. They don't care about the specifics of a degree, which is both good news, like if you've made poor life choices like me and studied pornography in the 18th century, it's fine, right? It's not gonna be held against me. But if you, you know, um, if it's all, but it also goes back to that. They also don't care that you have a history PhD, right? They're not interested in that degree. They're interested in the skills and, the, and how you problem solve and how you bring, come into an organization. And that's true of, of in STEM, you know, we always think scientists have it easier, they don't. Um, and, you know, having a PhD in a biological life science degree won't get you a job just in and of itself. You know, those employers, even though they're looking for that check, check mark, are still looking for other skills. So it's the skills, your value, your ability to help employers solve problems, and, and your own personal interest that's gonna take you there. So I'm gonna just show you uh, really quickly a resource that if you're, so Society of Biblical Literature, no, but AAR has, um, has provided this resource. This is our new e-learning platform that we launched earlier this year called Aurora. Um, and I'm just gonna show you, like you come to institutions.beyondprof.com, it'll reroute you to the login page. Um, hopefully this will work, because it'll be really embarrassing if it doesn't right now. Um, you go ahead and you put your member ID in and your password, and then you click login, and then it will reroute you to um, Aurora and you have access to all of Beyond Prof's programming um, avail available to you for your membership. So if you're a graduate student, I think the AAR membership is $45. Like, we don't give you access for $45 to all of this at Beyond Prof. So this is an awesome deal and an awesome resource for you. Um, we have resources for faculty careers because going back to Imagine PhD, you know, there are faculty jobs available, not as many as we'd like, and we know that in this very competitive job market, there's a lot of questions, and if you're not getting help and support from your advisor, you might not know how to write cover letters and CVs and for your academic jobs market, and I think that's really important. So we have that resource there as well, and then we have professional careers, and I'm gonna talk more about this later, so I'm not gonna go into all the details, but we also have a career exploration video resource library where these, you know, 
about 120 PhDs have been interviewed in various different ways in this, and then all of our um, how-to seminars are also done by PhDs. So if you're interested in, you know, just kind of figuring out what on earth you can do with your degree, you might want to start here with professional PhD interviews. You can see, um, go to Arts and Humanities if that's more, and you can see um, we've got a range of people who are working in all different kinds of spaces. Uh, some of them, like Kelly Baker, are AAR members. That's intentional. We wanted to make sure there were religious studies scholars in here for people as well. Um, you might also then start over here with the professional career strategies. Um, and there are six core modules, about 16 hours worth of content. On December 15th, you'll also be able to find a downloadable uh, workbook with about 130 pages, over 100 different activities and resources to help you break down the job search process. And we really recommend that you just start at the beginning um, at the introduction to the job search and really understanding the differences between an academic and a professional job search, why they're different, the, jo the goals of the employer. We also have a really fantastic webinar um, that uh, talks about dealing with the emotional aspects of leaving the academy because, of course, that's very real. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, you can just work through the rest of it, exploring your career options. We have a, a webinar about using Imagine PhD, a little bit more in depth, writing resumes and cover letters, identifying transferable skills, online job search strategies, including LinkedIn, networking, a whole webinar and informational interview, as well as another one by Joseph Barber, who works at the University of Pennsylvania Career Center, all about networking, um, interviewing and negotiating a job offer is our final one. So it's 16 hours, and if you work through it, you'll have ideas, of, you won't know what job you want, but you'll know how to go out and start asking those kinds of questions. And then the other thing with the interviews and career panels, you know, we ask a lot of questions about motivators and interests that when we interview people. We don't ask a lot about the skills because, you know, the skills are very specific to the job and you have lots of them. But just listening to people talk about what they love about their job will A, give you questions to ask for informational interviews, which is really important, but B, really help you see that the, uh, we, we don't, who we are as people continues on when we leave the academy and that we're able to have rich, fulfilling lives. And that's really one of the central aspects of all of these interviews that we do with PhDs. So again, this is totally included with AAR membership. If you're an S in the Society of Biblical Literature, I guess they maybe won't be mad at me for saying this, just buy a second membership because this was a really awesome resource uh, to get you um, started on. And, and the last thing I want to say is like we're really excited to have a professional association because we know that graduate students sometimes delay access to career exploration until they like flunk out on the job market. Um, and there, there's so many early career professionals that are in crisis who are falling through the cracks that with, you know, and, and so having a professional organization offer this to this, their members, people who don't have, are no longer associated with institutions or don't have access to employment opportunities because they're adjuncts, I think it's such a great thing that the AAR has done for its members, so. Um, so before we sort of open it up to questions, because we do want, you know, we don't want to just talk at you for, um, you know, the next hour, um, but I really want, because, you know, as we're sort of exploring these career opportunities, I think one of, um, and I know for me personally, one of the most important conversations was the one I had with my advisor um, when I told her that I would you know, I, I was in the writing stage and I had been offered a full-time job in my dean's office um, at the university and my advisor was furious with me. Um, she did not understand why I would be leaving the uh, classroom. She's like, but your teaching evaluations are so good. And I just, you know, and I had, 
over the course of many conversations, I had to explain to her that, you know, I wasn't willing to move anywhere for a job. Um, my, you know, I'm an East Coast gal, but also my partner was based in Philadelphia, and I didn't want to uproot my family. Um, I also had tons of student loans to pay that I could not. I could not. It would. I mean, I, I felt like I would. I would drown under the student loans that I had to pay unless I got a very stable job that had medical benefits, that had a you know a legitimate salary. I was making I think nineteen thousand dollars a year as a teaching assistantship, teaching two courses, um, two different preps on my own um, as instructor of record, um, and it was it was just not sustainable. I mean, I also I, I've had numerous conversations with in my new role as uh, graduate director uh, uh, you know director of graduate affairs for an entire college at Temple University I've had numerous conversations with faculty members who do not know that their students are working outside the Academy already whether it's tending bar on the weekends or whether it's you know working an admin job you know just to pay the bills because that nineteen thousand dollars does actually doesn't actually go very far um, so I'm wondering what sort of advice you may give a grad student or a faculty member um, in having those kinds of conversations this is always yeah this is something I always um, bring up with my PhD students who are coming in for career, career exploration talks um, because I'll often, so I'll usually bring it up in the context, uh, I'll just kind of say, oh, is, is this something that you feel comfortable talking about with your faculty advisor? Um, and I emphasize, do you feel comfortable? Because um, I know from experience that one's perception could be aligned with, a, with what actually happens. And you know, if, you, if you're sometimes, you know, people who are nervous about telling their advisor, unfortunately have the bad reaction and they predicted it correctly. Um, my own circumstance, um, I, I agonized for like two solid years, like really, really, really agonized about how, whether, whether, and then, you know, once I decided that, yes, I would, how to tell my, my advisor and my committee. Um, when I told my advisor, I was extraordinarily lucky to have her be very supportive and it was, you know, I, I really regret that I did agonize over that because she actually, um, you know, she actually referred me to my very first informational interview, which I had not expected at all. I thought it was going to be kind of this terrible conversation. And um, other committee members were pretty supportive. One, you know, kind of stopped giving me substantive feedback on my dissertation because I think he assumed, um, you know, there you go, right? Like, I'm leaving the academy. I'm leaving the space of, of needing this feedback to improve my writing. Um, but there was nothing overt, at least I could kind of, at least kind of ignore that and just get the feedback, you know, seek that even more so from my other committee members and my advisor. Um, but, but that is the thing. It's like, you, do, you f do you feel comfortable um, based on signals? You know, sometimes, the, sometimes students don't know whether or not they would, and I kind of say, well, maybe you can read, can you talk to other, other um, you know, is there any way you could maybe talk to a graduate coordinator or see if the coordinator knows people who did end up um, not going into faculty roles, uh, who are who were advised by your advisor? Maybe you can talk to them and see what their take is. Do they have that conversation? Because I think there is sometimes that mismatch of what what you expect the conversation will be like and what the actual conversation ends up being. Um, that being said, it's a huge risk, you know. And so, I mean, I've 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 heard of students, you know, especially in the STEM fields where where the PI will 
well, is literally supporting their um, their work. I mean, it's, a, it's an extremely real financial risk of the PI might decide you are not going to be part of his or her lab anymore, and what are you going to do? You know, once that happens. Um, so, so I so basically, for people who who do decide that they are comfortable having that conversation, um, I I think what did help me and what I see help other students um, is approaching it um, less of a these are the things I don't like about you know going into the the tenure track role and more of these are the other things drawing me to the other things you know so kind of the positive focus um, which is something that you know down the road will help you with cover letters too it, nobody wants to hear about like the things you hate they want to hear <laughs> think more about what motivates you but especially you know I mean just kind of putting yourself in your faculty member's shoes. Um, I mean, I know I wouldn't feel great if somebody, you know, who I'd been mentoring came to me and said, yeah, I really hate your job. Um, I've come to learn this over the years through your training. Um, so <laughs> I'm doing something else that I, you know, like this, th and these are all the reasons why I hate your job. Right? Like no, nobody wants to hear that, you know? So I, I, you can keep that, definitely that can be your motivation and keep that within you, but, but do try to focus on, um, what are the positives that are driving you to something else? And that might mean that maybe you tell, maybe you you have to get a little bit more of a sense of, of what you might be interested in before you, you tell your advisor. Um, or it could just mean that you generally say like, oh, I like these kinds of activities more. Like in my case, I like the office hours more or in other people's cases, I like the, you know, I really like the panel organizing or whatever, you know, like I, these are the things that I really like doing and I'm looking for, for roles where I can do more of that. Um, you know, just again, focusing on the positive. Um, I've seen that be, you know, pretty, pretty successful, um, but you know, obviously timing can really matter. For me, I didn't feel comfortable telling my committee until um, after I'd gotten to a certain point in my dissertation where I felt like um, no matter what happened, I could, I could finish, you know, and I could say, look, I'm, I'm this far along, I'm serious about finishing. Um, and that, that was my own choice, that I, I did want to finish. Some people don't want to finish. So it really, it really can be very, very personal. Um, and, and I'm sure I'm missing out things of this like conversation, so feel free to ask more. Because um, I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of students. Um, on the faculty side, I think that um, there are things, there are seeds that can be sown long before the conversation happens because, um, you know, it is really tough when the student is trying to predict that reaction. So um, there's one faculty in my department who um, made a, kind of made a big show of being very supportive of his students who ended up going into careers outside of the tenure track um, faculty route. So, um, you know, in, in my, I don't know if this has changed at all, but, but still definitely at least a few years into, um, after I'd finished, um, jobs on the, on the internal English department listserv Job success was only announced when it was a faculty role. It was a VAP, or it was a tenure, whatever it was, community college. Some, you know, at least, at least, you know, I should be grateful. Like at least, even the community colleges one, you know, in some departments, those ones wouldn't be announced. But in only the R1 uh, jobs. But um, when I got my job, um, my 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 advisor, even as though she had been so supportive of me when I was doing the search, um, she, didn't, she didn't announce it. it. It felt like it wasn't a point of pride. Um, most other people who did go outside of the academy, um, their jobs weren't announced in the listserv, um, except this one faculty made a point of it. When his, his student got placed, um, 
I don't, it was, I, I don't remember if it, it wasn't Google, but it was, it was, you know, name, you know, it was a proud thing to announce. It was a great, great job. Um, he announced it. And the thing is, even though it's this amazing job at an amazing company, I don't know that other faculty would have announced that. He, he, he became the person, I, I talked to him, even though I've never even taken a class from him to get strategy, you know, to, to ask like how I could um, talk to my, my advisors. Um, so I think if you could be a model really early on, um, just doing things like that, like announcing successes, all successes of, of your students, whether or not it's within um, the tenure track kind of model. Um, sending things to your students, like maybe there's a um, professoriate you know, conference coming up and sending it out on the listserv and saying, hey, if you're interested in career, in you know, professional careers, um, here's this thing to look out for. Um, looking to see if, if your graduate division or, or the campus career center is doing anything for, um, you know, kind of along the topic of um, careers outside of the professoriate, um, sending that out, you know, in the listserv or just over to your students. Because then that means that once it does get to that point that students are interested in, you know, and interested in talking to you about this, um, they're going to have gotten those signals to, to be comfortable with that rather than feeling like they have to hide this for how many years and agonizing about that, that conversation. Yeah, um, so I'm gonna build on a lot of that and reiterate much of that. Um, the first thing I just have to say, and like, I, I, mean, I wanna be positive, but it's like, it is utter malpractice in this state job market to not be having conversations with your students. Like, you just have to do that. Um, the other day when I was in the exhibit hall, I, I gave a card to a faculty member and they said, well, I don't want to give this to my student because I don't want to tell them that I think they'll fail at getting a faculty job. And I was just like, what? No. <laughs> like, there aren't any. You know, there's like five. Come on. And they're, they're not well-paid jobs right now. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of very real reasons why having this conversation is your job as a mentor and, and as an educator, right? Like, if you truly care about your students' success and who they are as people, then it behooves you as an educator, as a mentor, to have these conversations to make sure that the student is moving on. I think all the things that you just said, that they can pay their debts, that they can feed themselves, that they can have a child if they want to or not want to, right? Like that they can afford the birth control if they don't want <laughs> most. You know, like there's some very real things that are happening in the academy that are not, that are making this a very difficult career and we do not want our PhDs languishing in these terrible adjunct positions. Like, I think the most radical thing we can do is bleed the system dry of its talent because that's what will force institutions to change policy. So long as they can hire people for no money to teach classes and get amazing talent, of course they're gonna do it. So helping students go where they will have career advancement, where they will have success, where they will be valued, where they will be rewarded, where they will be paid, where they can take this knowledge and these skills and these abilities and do good, um, I think is so critical. And I think it's it's that idea that like it's a failure if you don't get a faculty job, just like we need to just get rid of it because these faculty jobs are just actually not that great like right now. And they're mostly off the tenure track, right? So like that's number one, like I really think from as early and often you have conversations with students about how they leverage their education. And the other piece on that is like, is it, you know, is it graduate training or is it graduate education? Because if it's training, then we should shut down a heck of a lot of PhD programs because there's not jobs. But if it's graduate education, well now let's have a conversation, right? About this education 
and how people that's why we talk about in uh, beyond prof like we want to empower pe- people to leverage their education not their graduate training their education wherever smart people are needed and that needs to be i think a mission that's adopted by a lot more departments and a lot of faculty and i think faculty like you know it's not your job to know how to write resumes and cover letters that's why these resources exist and that's what you know so i think that if you can just even spend a little bit of time curating some resources that you can have available to give your students. Like that's that's sufficient, you know. Um, and the other thing that we know at Beyond Prof, like we have a wait list of over 500 people who want to do interviews with us because PhDs are so hungry to give back that if you spend some time cultivating relationships with your alumni or PhDs on campus, you'll have a lot of really great resources. And for faculty, you know, uh, Jen Polk and I last year, we wrote an article in Inside Higher Ed challenging faculty to do an informational interview yourself every month. Like, don't, ha- don't, don't go to lunch with a colleague. Take the person from the purchasing office out to lunch and ask them about their job. Go to the bookstore. Take the person who runs the bookstore out. Like, go out and meet any, th- any kind of professional activity that happens elsewhere is happening on a university campus, and you as an advisor can learn a lot more about professional careers that are available everywhere without even having to leave campus, you know, like talking to people in advertising and marketing and just having those conversations even just once a month so that when a student comes to you and says, I'm really, I, I don't know what to do, you can say, well, you should go talk to John. He runs the marketing department and, you know, I see that you're a really strong communicator. That's something John really likes. Go have a conversation with John. And just having a couple of people on campus that you can start referring people to could just be really great. And it's so much easier for students, too, to reach out to people on campus than to go so far flung into the professional sphere when they're starting out. For students, I think you should have a goal. Um, Again, it's your education. How you decide to leverage it is your business, and you don't have to get permission from your advisor to become employed. Like, I I just really feel very passionate about that. It's your education. If you want to go open a fly fishing shop in western Montana after you finish your PhD, which is actually someone I found once, (laughs) totally your business, right? If you want to start a brewery, totally your business. Like, go do something interesting and fun, because it is just an education. It's not... It can't be a career path the way it used to be, or maybe it never was. It is an education, and it's up to you. So I think when you're going to have the conversation with your advisor, you should have a goal. First and foremost, your advisor might not actually be a very good letter, like recommender. You never need a letter of reference for a professional job, so you don't have to worry about that. And they might not actually be the best person to be a, a job referral for you. So you might not actually have to tell them. Like, that's first and foremost. It's not a conversation for permission. You don't need their permission to not go on the academic job market. You don't need their permission to apply for jobs and do what's in your best interest. They might not ever need to know. But if you do have the conversation, then have a goal, right? Or I think, Billy, Billy and what, what my colleagues have said, you know, have a positive story. Like, I'm really excited about these opportunities. I'm doing informational interviews. It seems really great, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to use these skill sets, and I'm really excited. And that's why I'm not going on the job market for academia, but thank you. Or I really love, you know, where we're living. I've got such a great community and family here, family and friends here. So I'm going to stay in Philadelphia, and that's what I'm doing. And that's it. And yeah, I think that, and then find other allies because, you know, it is your advisor's job to get you through your PhD. So if they begin to shirk their responsibilities or duties, then that's a conversation for you to have with the chair of the department, the director of graduate studies, or the dean because it is their job to help you get through. And so if they, you begin to have conflicts or problems because you're not going on the job market, then again, that's the, the advisor's job is to advise your, you to get your dissertation through. And so you need to maybe bring in some other allies if you start being pushed. But you know, I think for the most part, advisors either don't know what to say 
So they react poorly because they don't, they're, they're used to being experts and they feel obligated to offer you something and they don't know what to say. And so that's just remember that sometimes when people behave poorly, it's from a place of like fear or anxiety or a lack of knowledge and that they're maybe not jerks, they just maybe don't know what to say. And so, you know, have compassion for your advisors as well, because this is really crappy for PhD advisors to be in this situation, to have bright students that they would like to see, say, in the professoriate, and they cannot get you jobs the way that they want to, and that's hard. And just because this is being recorded, I will say that, you know, after numerous conversations with my advisor, she did come around, um, and she's, you know, now very proud and happy for me, especially considering I administratively oversee her department now um, and have to tell them about policies and procedures that they can and cannot do. So um, so I do want to open this up to all the folks here. I'm assuming you have lots of questions and we want to be here to answer them. So um, since this is being recorded, if you can go up to the microphone to ask questions, that would be great. Again, because this is being recorded, you do not have to identify yourself if you do not want to. Um, otherwise, we will continue talking, but we, we definitely want to hear from you, stories, questions, comments, um, other resources that you might have. Um, we're all here to sort of learn from each other, so. Hi, thank you for having this uh, session. Um, I've been coming to the sessions throughout the, the, the conference. Uh, I'm a master's student. I'm finishing my, my thesis uh, in the next month or two, and I'm currently applying for PhDs. Um, and uh, even at this conference, I've been, I I've been approached by PhDs that said, don't go, don't do it. But I am, bound and determined because I want it. That's a, it's a personal thing. It's a personal want. Um, and I would love to be a professor. I mean, that if you ask me what's my first plan A, uh, my first plan A is to be a professor and see that light bulb go off, because I think that's great in religious studies. Um, but I'm not, if that's not there, I'm totally okay for to doing something else. I'm also uh, a Baha'i, so I, there is a lot of stuff within our com my community, um, like B-I-H-E, Baha'i Institute for Higher Learning, to work with. Um, but I, my, my question would be, for us students, what would be that are looking for PhDs, knowing that there's not that many jobs out there, what would, you, what would the advice that you give me was like, other than uh, Aurora, because I really like, I just starred that on my. <laughs> um, so wearing my director of graduate affairs hat right now, because I think there are, there are larger questions about this, about the stake of our graduate programs, which you sort of alluded, Marin sort of alluded to um, before. Um, because I think if we don't make certain changes, we will lose grad programs completely, um, which could, which I, I mean, I don't think is a good thing. I think people should go to graduate school. Like, I think that there should, like, people should learn, continue to learn more things. <laughs> um, 
But I also think that graduate programs need to figure out how they're going to make changes. And I, I, I also don't think that those changes necessarily need to be super drastic. I think they could be really, you know, like encouraging a faculty culture that supports, you know, um, you know, other sorts of careers. Um, as someone looking for a PhD program and going in, I, I mean, funding is like number one. Um, I don't think you want to go into debt, and speaking as someone who went into debt for their PhD. Um, I started in 2011, um, and I got funding eventually, but not for everything, and also $19,000 a year is not enough to live on when you have a family and dogs. <laughs> I have dog children. Um, or when your car breaks down, or you know uh, right. anything else happens to you. Um, so funding, number one, okay. um, I think, you know, I would not go into a PhD program that's not going to pay you to be there. Okay. Um, whether that is, um, whether you have to do work for them is another sort of situation. So at Temple, we have the distinction between an assistantship and a fellowship. Fellowship requires no work and you get paid to be there, um, usually larger stipends, medical insurance, and then an assistantship, you have to actually do some sort of labor. Now, our graduate students are unionized, which I think is a really good thing. I was a dues-paying member, a union member for the entire time I was there, and now I sort of, I have a relation, I have to maintain those guidelines and relationship with that union, so I would suggest going to somewhere that where graduate students are unionized and their labor cannot be exploited because that does happen a yeah. lot. Um, so the, so funding and you know having that sense of graduate community whether it's in a union or you know otherwise um and then you know um going back to this sort of faculty culture of support you know making sure that the faculty there can support both you know a faculty search and a non-faculty search i think would be great i don't know if you all have anything to add to to that yeah uh, the first thing I would say is that you should do informational interviews with faculty to make sure it's worth what, what you actually want to do. Okay. Because, you know, you say, like, I want to be in the classroom and see light bulbs go, go off. Like, that is, like, this much of what a faculty member does. And your tenure and promotion will not be uh, related at all to your... To, to that in most institutions. Um, most, inst there's, a mis I, there's a misunderstanding that most jobs are at teaching-focused institutions. That's act I mean, that might be true for religious studies, but generally that's not actually true. Um, R1 institutions have much larger faculty than small colleges, right? Duke, you think the size of Duke's college as opposed to, um, you know, Greensboro. It's, it's enormous, and people have this uh, misunderstanding that teaching-focused institutions are where the jobs are. The jobs are largely at research-intensive, research-focused institutions, and we're seeing adjunctification happening at a much higher rate at teaching-focused institutions than, like, Duke, right? Like, right. Duke has adjuncts, but they're still, they're always gonna have endowed professors at those kinds of schools. So, you know, you wanna think about that. So okay. if you're thinking about teaching-focused institutions, you should be doing a lot of informational interviews about what that actually looks like to make sure that it's worth the investment, the time, energy, and risk that you're gonna take on. Okay. And we don't do enough of that, I think, when we talk, about, like, we just assume it's gonna be awesome. It might not be, yeah. it might not be a good fit for you. Th that's um, what I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, so that's step number one, right? And then step number two is, um, 
set up your graduate education so that you will be marketable in prefer professional careers as well. If for anyone's deciding to do a PhD, you know, the problem for me isn't that people take five years to do a PhD. Do your PhD in five years, please try. Okay. The problem is that people take eight, nine, ten years to do a PhD and then they adjunct for another five and now all of a sudden you're approaching 40 and you're trying to break into professional career without any linear work experience, that is really hard. Okay. So if you're gonna do a PhD, you need to be looking for applied opportunities, whether it's being involved in student committees, whether it's internships, whether it's just getting involved in digital humanities, any, get, like get out of the classroom and get all kinds of different professional experience while you're earning a PhD. Because okay. your teaching will translate, but it's, it's like one very narrow skill set, communication, um, you know, developing curriculum and programming. And then there's lots of other things that people are going to be looking for. So if for anyone thinking about doing a PhD, like there's plenty, of, I mean, I joke, there's plenty of ways to rack up debt and waste away your 20s. I did mind getting a PhD. That's fine. <laughs> Some people go to Europe, also fine. But you want to be very strategic about the time that you're spending in graduate school so that you can leverage that experience, not just the education, but the actual work experience okay. that, you're, that you're getting while you're on campus and making sure that that's as rich as possible. Okay, thank you so much. I, I would also say just sort of piggybacking off of that, you know, getting out of the classroom, get out of your department. And this, this is for current PhDs as well. I, you know, I work in a place where you know, all of these programs are within the College of Liberal Arts, but the departments are so insular that PhD students in criminal justice have no idea who the PhD students are in sociology. And there could be so much collaborative, interdisciplinary work happening that just doesn't happen because they get so insulated. And this could be, you know, program requirements and things like that, which I think goes back to what you know, graduate programs may need to change. Yeah. Um, and I, from my position up top, from the dean's office, as, you know, providing programming and services for grad students, I'm sort of forcing them to make those changes um, or s highly recommending those changes. Um, but getting out of your department, whether it is getting involved in your digital humanity center, or for me, I got an admin job in the registrar's office while I was a grad student. I hated it, yeah. but it was... Like, I learned the bureaucracy and politics of working at a university, and that has come in, like, it's been so helpful. In, in so I currently work in the disabled students department. That's, um, yeah, that's a great, that, yes. And Keep doing that. Keep and, doing that, uh, and those skills yeah. that you are gaining by working in that sort of, not only the field, but the department itself, and how that department, you know, speaks to all of these other university services and departments, I think yeah. is really, really great. Okay, thank you. This is a moment of like, do as I say, not as I did. Because the reason why I was so lost is because I was gonna be a professor. So anything that looked like a quote unquote distraction, I didn't do. And that was a huge mistake that I made. Because when I left, I had very narrow work experience. I'd only taught. Uh, I did work on a digital humanities project to pay my, you know, and I didn't leverage that. But I just wanna say like, this is like, speak from experience like my broken depressed state was partly because I had not done anything other than teach research write, focus on publishing and getting that tenure track job and I was so poorly set up when I exited the Academy yeah I would just reiterate everything especially uh, my first thing was gonna be go to a place that's funded um, there it just do not go into debt for this and in calculating the living costs and making okay. sure it'll, everything will be covered yeah. um, <coughs> Um, also, with the informational interviews, I, I mean, it's just really excellent advice from, from, from both. Um, 
informational interviews also um, you know see what their support is like of um, see what what the faculty think of careers um, beyond our one tenure track faculty routes um, or try to see if you how do does the department track where their students go mm, okay. um, if they do you know a lot of websites I'll see um, they, they do but only the students who are getting placed in the faculty routes right um, so you can just see a little bit there will that Will that be there and, and absolutely get involved in um, in things throughout your your career there? Um, look out for things like what the grad division and, and career services are offering mm -hmm. in terms okay. of professional development along the way. Um, one last thing is my um, one of my committee members. I was trying to figure out. I, I knew I wanted to finish the dissertation, but I uh, when I would had decided my <coughs> career, but I couldn't figure out how to like why that was okay, I guess. I was like, are you gonna force me out because I don't, I don't wanna do this? And when he kind of was giving me the, a pep talk, he was very supportive and um, he said, the PhD is one of the, is basically the most selfish thing you'll ever do in your life. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. I think just, just be highly aware of, um, of why you're doing it. And if it stops being that thing for you, like it's okay to stop, but mm -hmm. as long as it's that thing for you, that, that okay. germ that's carrying you through. Yeah. Um, and that was one thing I just, I just kind of, it really, really motivated me where it was always in the end, um, you know, I was not gonna get a job <laughs> um, teaching Victorian literature, <laughs> like ever, anywhere, like not even, even if I applied to places globally, it's just, you know, it's not gonna happen. Um, and I wouldn't have been happy doing that, but I, I loved my topic, and um, you, you just need that thing going for you, and just kind of really keep assessing to yourself, is that is that thing still there? Okay. It's yeah. okay to quit. Yeah. It is. Okay. It is okay to quit, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. At any point. For, Thank you so we want to make that very clear. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Um, so it's been very helpful to hear about the kind of resources in terms of developing where you might fit outside of academia and those kinds of things and the importance of networks as well, but it's still unclear to me like where to find these jobs. And I know you've said that like there's not one job board, right? But even then, like where do you start? So uh, start where, where, where do you live or where do you wanna live? <coughs> Like, so that's literally step one. So if you're in the place that you want to live, um, awesome. Step number two, what kind of employers are there? What are the main drivers of the economy? Is it healthcare? Is it tech? Is it the university? Who employ, like, wh where, where do people find jobs, right? So if you're in like Durham, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, like Duke owns that town. And when you're <laughs> talking to people, a one in three people will work at Duke, right? Like, I mean, I'm joking, but maybe not. Um, and then, you know, so if that doesn't seem appealing, what else are some of the satellite things that are happening? So the first is just to do like your own research study. Like, what is this place? What are the industries that are there? And then start looking at those companies on just their websites. So start with employers of interest. Start reading about what they do, what their mission and goals are. If, you know, again, don't think nonprofit, for profit. Think like these. This is the kind of organization that I want to work for. I want to do things that are involved in the community or that are focused on education. You know, because there's a lot of tech companies, for example, that are doing really cool things with apps and technology focused on you know re underrepresented minority groups in education. Just as an example. So just think about what it is you want to do. Have that values conversation, and then start finding employers that are doing those kinds of things. That's and then go to LinkedIn. 
uh, have like a very basic LinkedIn profile, like those, um, and I'm happy if you email me at marin at beyondprof.com, I'll send you that list of, of skills, that slide that employers are looking for, and just kind of think about a LinkedIn profile that emphasizes those skill sets, just very basic, That because this is iterative, you'll come back to LinkedIn. Uh, but you want to be on it because your next step will be to put those employers of interest into a LinkedIn search and find employees that work there now or did work there in the past and start clicking on people's job titles and then be like, oh, that seems interesting. Um, and then do a research project around like those different job titles of like, okay, content marketing, um, you know, volunteer coordinator, like what are these things that I'm reading about? customer success, what on earth are these things? Um, and then once you have an idea of like things that sound good, then you actually do start this informational interview process. So that's the step, like, and avoid job boards because 70% of jobs are never posted. Like at Beyond Prof, when we hire, we are not legally required to list a job anywhere. So I hired my sister to be my bookkeeper because I needed one. You know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. So if you're focused on job boards, like on Indeed or Glassdoor, why on earth as an employer would I put something up there so I get 6,000 resumes that are not curated, right? Like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna put it on my LinkedIn profile, I'm gonna tell, we do this all the time, we actually mostly hire Canadians, but um, we, we'll send it out to the, our, our colleagues at grad programs and Canadian institutions and say, can you put this out on your listserv? Like, we never publicly post, because I don't want 600 re like resumes, I want five from people that I know that I can call and say like, okay, so what was this person like? So if you're focusing on job boards, like you'll never find the job that's right for you. And then the informational interviews, when you're having those, you just say, you know, your first level of informational interviews is gonna be just like what, cause tell me more about what you do. Tell me more about your organization. And then you're gonna do some reflection. And then once you have an idea of the kinds of jobs you wanna do or the kinds of skills you wanna leverage, you can go back and do follow-up informational interviews with people that were friendly and helpful. And then you start asking for more questions and you start asking for opportunities. And you don't say like, can I work at your company? You just say like, okay, well, you know, I've decided this is my path, these are my skills, now I'm looking for opportunities. And again, if you're building up a LinkedIn profile, you can be posting that on LinkedIn. Like I'm looking for opportunities, these are the skills I'm looking for. And now you've been connected to all these professionals on LinkedIn and they'll start thinking about it and then you just come back to people and, and just be like okay well I'll check in with you in about three months see where things are at your organization because things change very quickly and that's how you'll find a job yeah I just want to reiterate all uh, all of that and, and one thing too is um, even you know in with the with the job boards even if our, they are posting um, they could be the, the one job could be called like 15 different things. Yeah. So just an example, uh, when we post for a, a job uh, at the Career Center, um, a year ago I was called a graduate student career advisor, then our jobs changed to associate director, so they're like 12 or whatever, associate directors. So now you would have to know to look for associate director, um, comma industry engagement or comma career coach or whatever. Um, some of my colleagues are called assistant directors, some of them are called um, Deans. Some of them are deans. Some of them are um, career coaches. Like, there, any name you can think of. And this is just within. It's a fairly niche field, you know, <laughs> advising graduate <laughs> students at universities. Like, it's, it's pretty. It's it's pretty niche. Um, and and half a dozen titles just spring to the top of my head. So, you know, if I were to look for that um, on Indeed or whatever, I would I would never ever come across this role. But what what did make me find this role um, is. Um, my sister actually works at UC San Diego, and I had not even considered moving. I was in Riverside, and I was like, eh, I, didn't, I didn't think about moving for a job. Um, 
And um, this was the second, I think they had done a search and done a failed search or some, something from what I remember. Um, I hadn't been looking at UCSD. I'd just been looking at other local universities. Um, and she happened to get an email. They were kind of like, this is our last gasp. We're trying to search again. Do you know anybody? And she's like, oh, this is, is this what you're doing? I, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly, you know, and I literally got, she used this, she sent it to me the day before it was due and I probably, you know, it was, it was very, like I said, the whole like, um, yeah, it really was serendipity and it was also, I mean, yeah, she's my sister, but like, tell everybody you know um, and as those plans evolve, update them what those are. Um, when you do have the informational interviews, as you're following up with people, you don't have to say, can I get a job? Like, they're going to know by the conversation. If you're, if they, and they're getting to know you too, and thereby who you are as a person, as a potential employee. So it's already going to be planting seeds in their minds where there's possibility. And, and they're, they're going to be reading these conversations as, oh, she's looking, you know, maybe it's not their organization, but somebody they work with, or maybe there's something they saw that can send you. Um, being part of professional associations, if there is one that is, you know, like for, for us, it's Graduate Career um, Consortium. Um, we get job board, you know, there are job listings that get emailed to us. Um, so there might be something similar in whatever it is that you end up uh, going into. So that could be another thing. But that's often, you know, to be honest, often I hear about the jobs locally before they go out on the GCC listserv, yeah. you know. Um, so it really is going to be through who you're talking to, um, who you know, and that can be everybody from the person in high school you didn't realize ended up at XYZ to, you know, people. Huh? Yeah, so you're like yeah, exactly. You just you just don't know. So just tell everybody, have those informational interviews, and and let them know that that you are looking for these things. They'll point you toward the organizations, and then absolutely you do still have to apply online. You know, so you do want to be looking at the organization's job boards page. Maybe you'll see something before somebody else tells you. But a lot of times, it's those things are going to work. And I would say I totally agree about, you know, spending too much on job boards is just going to drive you insane. Um, and, but I will say that I think one of the things that I have found, especially for grad students who haven't thought about this at all, is that job boards are a really good way to understand the language of yes. the jobs. So like, you know, my students come to me and it's like, I don't know how to write a resume. I don't know how to write a cover letter for like a non-faculty job. Um, how do I learn the language? And I was like, well, number one, you are a researcher. You are a lifelong learner. Like, go and under, like, learn how to, learn how to use the language that those jobs are using, I think. And that, not only is that going to make you stand out in, you know, in that, if you are applying for that random job where you have no connections, um, but it's also going to, you, you know, it's going to familiarize yourself with the industry, the field, the language that is being used within the company and, you know, in the job posting. Um, so I think that that's probably the, the one really good benefit of spending a lot of time on job boards. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, two things. One, informational interviews are totally normal everyone does them it's not something you have to do just because like you're a loser with a PhD like everybody does <laughs> everyone them, right? does them. so to reiterate what um, Julia was saying like they or was it Amy I'm sorry uh, but they know you're looking for a job because yeah, they've done yeah. informational interviews when they were looking for a job so this is a normal thing we're asking you to do it's not something that we just made up um, and then the second piece uh, to, to read just a story this guy uh, David who I interviewed who's a PhD in applied mathematics so you're thinking like employable but he did the same thing. So he did a lot of informational interviews with Google and Amazon. 
because he knew he's, he told me that he the only useful part of his phone was the app that he, that the map app it was the only thing he likes about his phone because it helps him navigate so he knew he wanted to move into a company that was developing you know te uh, navigation technology so he did uh, Amazon Google tons and tons of informational interviews looking at the jobs he didn't want to move out to California or to Seattle but when a job came up in Chicago he was able to put together a really convincing resume and cover letter because of all this research that he did. And the, although he didn't know anybody at that company, because he had done all of this research and was able to put together really strong application documents, he got an interview. Because remember, your application documents are just an invitation for a conversation. They don't get you the job. And then because he knew, he'd done all these informational interviews, he knew what to expect when he went into these, this, this interview. So he was able to prepare. He knew they were going to do like a chalkboard where he was going to have to problem solve. He knew that it was okay. He got the wrong answer. They just wanted to see how he like thought through problems. And because he'd gone through all this, done all this research, you know, he got the job. So, you know, you might not be doing research at companies where you're going to work, but that exactly what Amy's saying, like, you learn the language of employers, understand the hiring process for a particular field. And again, that's why there's no one place where we can be like, go here. Because every industry and every company is going to have a different kind of hiring process. And that's what these experts, these PhD, you know, these people who work there, that's what they're going to tell you. They'll give you the right answer. So just ask them. Hey, Dan. Hi. How you doing? Oh, I guess I've been outed now. Totally fine. Uh, so, I thought that was okay uh, given your job. Oh, yeah, it could be anyone. It just happens to be in this room. Um, so uh, thank you for talking about the distractions. I was a very distractible grad student. I was just kind of all over the place. And that's why I'm employed now, which is interesting. Um, uh, my question is, uh, um, so I've been involved in some research in the past on uh, what graduate programs or graduate schools might do to change their curriculum requirements. Um, and I've seen people do really innovative stuff with internships, but one of the things we never really found an answer for was changing the structure of the dissertation project <laughs> to make it, uh, make it, you know, set someone up for different kinds of employment, different, uh, do different things, gather different kinds of information. We really didn't find much, and I'm curious if you have. So um, I'm going to use an example of Nick Susanis. Does anyone know who that is? Um, so Nick Susanis is a PhD from Columbia English program, I believe. Um, and he's a graphic artist. He's a comic book creator. Um, and we had him visit Temple a few years back. Um, he wrote his entire dissertation as a comic book. Um, which is really, I mean, I'm not suggesting that all dissertations should be comic books, though it would probably make them much more fun. Um, but I think he, so he, um, and maybe English, it, maybe it was um, education, I forget what it was, um, but you should look it up, it's a, a really amazing comic book. Um, but we had him come to campus and talk about, um, you know, diverse forms of the dissertation because, you know, we wanted we wanted both students and faculty to start thinking about how we could potentially change this very traditional monograph, which has been around for centuries probably, um, how we could change that to make the form and structure better for grad students. Um, and that could be, and, and really we, we went so far like into the comic book world that we really wanted to sort of jar people into like thinking about creative forms of the dissertation. Um, 
That being said, um, writing a dissertation in the College of Liberal Arts at Temple University has not changed. Um, I wrote a you know 250-page dissertation about the death and dying of companion animals, um, which, if anyone wants to talk about that, I'd be more than happy to. But um, you know, it's still. I, I don't think that those changes have been made. I think people are sort of thinking about it, to in, especially in regards to employment and um, you know thinking about careers. But I have not seen those changes at Temple yet, and I don't know if you've seen those changes anywhere. Um, I, like I, I don't, from my perspective, like from the work that I do, like I feel like I don't care about the dissertation in any format because. Non, you know, professional employers also don't care about that in any meaningful ways. Again, they're looking for skills. So if there was gonna be a change to the way the dissertation would be done, I would go back to that skill, list of skills that we already, you know, people are always doing these surveys and like, oh gosh, we wish we employers would, like employers have already told us what they want. They tell us all the time. Forbes does surveys, you know, all these professional organizations do it. And I feel like we keep wanting a different answer, which is like, well, we really want the PhD. And it's like, well, they're never <laughs> gonna tell you that. Like, so stop asking for that. Um, stop massaging questions to get that answer. They're never gonna say. So I think that starting with a list of like, what are these skills that are, are, you know, collaboration is one thing that could be very much more part of graduate education in the humanities, social sciences, leadership. Um, what I would rather see rather than even a dissertation Revision is having people actually learn the language of project management. So like yes. the fact that I drank red wine at well into the evening and then wrote is not project management. The fact that I survived my dissertation doesn't mean that I was taught skills. It's just like I haphazardly learned things in order to get out of them. So even with the dissertation, just keep it the same. But then like, can we actually implement better project, like actual project management skills, actual implementation of things that people use in other professional settings and bring it back into graduate education so that you don't have to reverse engineer a, you know, the, your graduate education as an example of project management when it wasn't. You actually l have learned project management, PMI, you know, bring people in, have that be part of campus culture. Because every single person, whether it's the department chair or the work that you guys are doing and the work that I'm doing requires project management skills. So that would just be like a tweak that wouldn't even be about right. a massive revision of like, you know, because you have to go to the graduate school and you have to like get faculty and you're always, you know, unless, you know, it's so hard to do. But there could be smaller things like bringing in better theories, methods, and practices to allow students to apply it to the traditional dissertation that might go a long way. Yeah, and I think um, just going off of that, I think anyone who's written a dissertation knows how unstructured the time is, how distracted you can get, and how on your own you are. Like, how lonely it can be, and how emotionally draining it can be, and how you don't have the cohort of your graduate students who came in with you to rely on anymore, and how your advisor rarely treks in with you and just lets you do whatever the hell you want. Like, that that doesn't that it doesn't foster like the productivity and and it could be why you have students taking seven eight nine years to finish a dissertation i didn't know if you wanted to add anything i mean to just that. just yeah. to add, i mean i just wanted to reiterate yeah to absolutely uh, i agree with with what uh, amy and Marin have been saying uh, wholeheartedly um and also you know with with employers so well, like Marin was saying employers have been telling us it's the same thing that we know what they want to see what, um and if there's also a way that somehow the dissertation could be revised um, so that it's not, it's speaking, 
more of that language of being clear, you know, students aren't having to say, like you're saying, oh, I, I project managed. Well, it's, it's not really project managing or when, you're, when you're writing your own monograph. Um, or even in the classroom, um, I, I managed a classroom, or like when they're trying to make that equivalence between managing as teaching versus managing a, staff, a staff. You know, like We're seeing a lot of PhDs who want to go into leadership roles, but they're not actually managing people um, in, those, in that sense, right? Like they're, they're grading. It's a very different power dynamic and a different kind of mentoring relationship. Um, and so if there's something that, I, I don't know what that looks like. I know, I know there have been tons of discussions, um, um, especially I've seen it in like high, uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed and Inside Higher Education, um, about what that might look like. Um, and I don't know what that is necessarily, but I think there's something that can speak to not having to make that awkward, you know, reverse engineering, as Marin said. Um, and also, on the other hand, we do hear employers, when they say they're nervous about hiring PhDs, it's often because of the things that the dissertation breeds, the isolation. Oh, I'm worried, you know, they're gonna just want to work in this one particular topic without anybody, you know, not, they don't wanna work in a team, they just wanna do their own thing and show up at their own, you know, show up at their desk eight hours a day, not interact with anybody and just do their own, you know, they don't wanna get assigned things by managers. Okay, so how can we, um, how can we design the dissertation to work against that. Um, you know, obviously it was put in place for a particular reason. I, I'm not saying we have to like throw everything away and um, start from scratch, but is there something that can that can speak to like like actual life skills that are going to be, be um, you know, necessary in addition to allaying some of those those stereotypes about what happens with dissertation? Just, I think just to sort of summarize and build, it's like, can we take the dissertation and better situate it in with the professional creative economy? And what would that actually look like? So you could still be a 250-page monograph, but how do we actually think about where people are gonna move? It's the creative economy. What kind of things are people looking for? And then, you know, can we structure graduate education, the time people are spending on this monograph to, to help people uh, you know, and, and I think it would go back to some of this depression, you know, what is it, uh, the University of California did a graduate mental health that they came up with about 38% of students that were uh, experiencing high to moderate levels of anxiety and depression, which is six times the rate of uh, the general population. And a study came out in Nature recently that found like 37. So we know about 35 to 40% of graduate students are experiencing massive levels of anxiety and depression. And part of one of the things they say is this employment insecurity. And if we can do a better job of situating graduate education and helping people with these skills, you know, we, we at Beyond Prof really think that this is a critical part of this graduate student depression and anxiety. And you know, we focus on like making advisors be more supportive, which is great. But there's other things we could do in around this employment issue that would help alleviate that massive like, it's absolutely insane. When you tell other people that statistics, they're just like, wait, what? Then we have a 40%, and I think when you start getting out into the, the, the early career professionals, it's probably higher, and that's staggering and horrifying. So some of this tweaking, uh, situating the, the graduate education more holistically within where people are gonna go will help students, when they're reading job advertisements, think like, well, I do know project management, I do have leadership skills, I can leave the academy, I can go elsewhere. 
because right now I'm writing a 250 page dissertation. I'm reading these things with this discourse I don't know. And I think, well, I cannot be a project manager. And it's like, well, you probably can't tomorrow, but you could learn it. So how can we do things to, to support students so they have a richer imagination of where they can go and those job ads when they're reading them or when they're doing informational interviews aren't so terrifying and so having to cross that divide because it can feel like a massive divide and that's why the, the people opt into these exploitative, terrible adjunct positions because it's a huge chasm that they feel like they have to cross. Mm. You brought up digital humanities. So I've already graduated so um, is it something I could get into at this stage? Definitely something I have an interest in. I've even thought about just learning to code, which yeah. I don't know if that's what you'd usually expect humanities people to do, but it would interest me. Um, if you're, sorry, uh, if you're interested in coding, you might just, uh, I would do some informational interviews and then I would check out some of these data science coding camps that they have. Yeah. Um, uh, some of them have exceptionally high placement rates. I know people who've done it, usually out of the social sciences. Uh, some of them you have to pay for. Sometimes some of them you don't have to pay for. Employers will pay for them, so look for those. Yeah. And um, I would skip getting on a digital humanities project if coding is what you want to, if you're interested in coding. And, and get that experience in some of these more trained ways that will, especially because you've graduated and I assume you, employment is, would be good to get soon. Um, that might be yes. a way to sort of think about that kind of thing. And then if you have the coding skills, you could maybe apply for some digital humanities jobs com com combining that. But if the yeah. skill you wanna learn is um, coding, there's a lot of resources that are available to help people learn to code. And I think coding camps are a great opportunity. Some of them are very scammy, so be very careful. Yes. Some of them are very legitimate, so have some conversations with people uh, before you get into them. And I'm happy to connect you with a couple of people who've done that. And I would just say, t um, I think a lot of universities are developing either digital humanity centers or, um, so Temple has something called a um, scholars studio or something like that that is sort of housed in our library um, but it is really like a university-wide digital humanities uh, sort of digital scholarship sort of space um, and if I think you know going back to like informational interviews like if you still have any sort of relationship whether you're an alumni or an adjunct or whatever with that institution just stopping by and sort of figuring out what they do and what they what sort of offer you know services they offer or what kind of research they're doing um, I think could be really beneficial. Yeah. A follow-up question, quick comment though. Also, uh, LinkedIn alumni search tool is really yes. useful yes. for finding yes. informational. You go to your university's page and you search the. You can search their alums. Yeah. You I was just going to say uh, yeah. in the in Aurora, uh, there's a webinar by Joseph Barber uh, in the networking, and he shows you how to do that uh, alumni search. So you yeah. can check out Joseph's uh, networking webinar in Aurora. And just going back to departments and faculty keeping track of alumni, um, so I've started requiring my grad directors to do, I mean, I think they've done annual reports for a while about graduate education. This is like, you know, how many students graduated, how many, you know, got a job, et cetera. Um, so this year I, I made them all give me the LinkedIn links of their former students, which was fun for them. Um, and they only complained a little bit about. Um, 
But it was so amazing, my grad director in philosophy, which I think is a really, can be a really interesting department um, in lots of different ways, um, especially when it comes to, you know, diverse careers. Um, but he was, he was like, oh, my, my philosophers don't use LinkedIn. And I said, oh, maybe you should check, just check. I just wanna know, you know, just, just check it out. And he comes back to me a couple weeks later and says, all of my former students are on LinkedIn. And I'm like, I know, I know, and I'm really glad you found them. <laughs> so I, I think LinkedIn is great. And I mean, it's, you know, I think as someone who is not very good at social media, I'm not very good at LinkedIn, but I have a profile, it's up there. I connect with people. I, you know, when I asked Marin and Julia to be here today, I immediately connected with them on LinkedIn. So, and we have that connection now forever. So I, it is really, for better or worse, it's yeah. very beneficial. Never pay for the uh, a premium. No, you don't. You can totally just do everything you need to do with free LinkedIn. Yes, yes. LinkedIn wants your data, and they sell that. You don't need to also give them your money. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I'll add to is that sometimes universities like UC San Diego um, uh, has sometimes they have um, alumni kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, software or. Uh, um, programs that they run. So UC San Diego's, um, they just switched platforms, so I believe the new one is called Triton's Connect. Um, so you can also check with the university, and this is, you know, that one's it's specifically for alumni, so check with the, your university too and see. Um, we used to have one that was like more of a student to alumni connection. I don't know if the new platform will do that as well. Um, so either, whether you're a current student or whether you're an alum, um, you know, see if there's that. It can help kind of grease the wheels a little bit, but LinkedIn, <coughs> If, I mean, it's not a big deal if they're, they don't have that software because LinkedIn, it's so normal and this is the thing to do, like you were saying, look at your university's LinkedIn page. Um, you can start, then look at alumni. You can search in that, the box that comes up, you know, maybe it's a company that you're looking for where they work. Maybe it's a, a certain role that they have um, and can filter things by that and then reach out to alumni and, and start those conversations. And I would say that most career centers, even career centers at institutions who don't necessarily provide services for grad students, because that does happen, like Julia's uh, career center does an amazing job of, of uh, providing career services and advice for grad students. Temple University has one dedicated uh, graduate uh, person for 6,000 grad students, so it is, it, He's doing an amazing job, but it's, it's, you know, this is a new thing for him and for the Career Center. But I will say almost every Career Center is going to give you the opportunity for business cards, uh, free headshots, and I would encourage you to put a headshot on LinkedIn and not like a selfie, which I, I th I'm pretty sure mine is the selfie. It's pretty bad. But um, so, you know, try to take, even if your Career Center on campus is, you know, servicing mainly undergraduate students, take advantage of those, those services that they're providing because they're there for you too. You pay university fees, they're there for you too. Um, so we have about eight more minutes left. As, uh, I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. And I don't know about you, but I can hang out for a little bit after the session. Um, but if there's any other questions, we're happy to answer them. Thank, thank you for this session. And I do, I have a quick one for you. I was wondering if you had any thoughts or comments about a kind of hybridity within within careers, for example, having an academic adjacent type job, but also having opportunities to remain plugged into that kind of space or community with, through teaching opportunities as well. Um, 
So I have tried really hard to do this, and I, I do have lots of thoughts about this. So I am the incoming chair of the Applied Religious Studies Committee. I am really passionate about this work um, and about AAR support to the point where I will force them to support this work. Um, but I'm also the co-chair of the Death, Dying, and Beyond Committee, which is a very still, you know, very normal academic program unit here at AAR. Um, and I, you know, I have a co-chair who is a faculty member at Baylor, and I feel very supported by her and you know my committee is you know very supportive even though I'm not a faculty member um, and what I've been able to do since I defended um, and I I guess I do have sort of an academic adjacent career in that I am still very much involved in like the academic goings-on of my university and the College of Liberal Arts at Temple University um, I've also managed to sort of so my expertise is in death and dying, and particularly in, in animal studies. Um, so I did a lot of consulting work for cemeteries in Philadelphia who were thinking about opening pet cemeteries, which was a lot of fun for me. Um, I'm like, I'll do everything except sell burial plots for you, like, but I will help you think of and you know think about how you could offer these services. Um, and I've also kept, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, I'm exhausted 90% of the time, but I will say that I have, you know, I have been able to turn one of my dissertation chapters into a publication, um, but I will say it's not, it's an academic publication, but it was a little bit experimental, and I had full control over what I was writing about, and, you know, because I don't have the pressure of tenure or anything like that, I was able to write uh, a really emotional piece in first person about the death of my dog and how important that was. You know, so it's so I I feel like I have been able to create my own hybridity for for myself, um, and I've been able to sort of you know figure that out. But it has not been easy, and it has been exhausting, um, especially working full time and trying to write your dissertation. But um, so I think there are ways of doing it, but I think it's it's very piecemeal, and you have to figure it like it's very personal and individual to the to the person um, it's interesting because I actually have a similar publication thing yeah, too so yeah. like, once the pressure's off and you can you know you can really go wild um, but uh, yeah so absolutely I think that is really true um, in terms of really trying to find ways you can build this in it might be within your job but likely you know in many cases it's going to be out, outside of that kind of a, a ampersand <laughs> you know to your, to your role um, that being said um, you know, what I see at UCSD and other universities is that there are some positions where um, they're kind of academic adjacent with some faculty components. So um, most, if not all, of our assistant directors of our various um, colleges' writing programs um, are both doing the administrative work, plus they're in the classroom as well. Um, I know that the person who used to coordinate the, um, what used to be called the, Center for Humanities, they, they kind of changed all of that, but when she was in her role, she was both the director of that and did all the administrative components, and she also had a faculty load. Um, so there are, so there are certain things where there is that kind of built-in hybrid. Um, that being said, it's not, you know, they're, they're kind of few and far between, so it's more likely you'll be, you'll be making that ampersand happen. Uh, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, I would encourage you to Dig into that a little bit more, what that desire is and what your concern is about not having access to that. Is it, you know, because, like, I think, again, like, I was hell-bent on an academic career, and 
I would never do scholarship at this point. My God, it takes way too long and it's boring and it's time consuming. And the other tiring. And it's the other, and it takes forever. And then people tell you that you can't publish it. Like I would rather, uh, you know, I have so much intellectual stimulation in my job, so much that like I am, I go for, you know, I go for a run and I'm like, I come back with 14 ideas of the things we're going to do at Beyond Brav. And I'm so excited. And then, the other day, I had a two and a half hour strategy session with a friend of mine who's also a business advisor. Um, it was two and a half hours, and it was fantastic. And I didn't sleep for forty-eight, like the next forty-eight hours, because I was like, "Oh my god, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna do that." And he's like, "So right," and like this. And for me, it's the intellectual stimulation of those conversations that I was missing. And I find that if I'm just talking to Michael about business strategy and he's like yeah but you know what he's like I've you know I'm, I read your six page like I sent him a six page strategy document because I'm a humanities person he's an engineer <laughs> and I broke down like everything we were doing and all the struggles and challenges we were having and like having that conversation with him about what we could do next and the way we could take what we were seeing and problem solve and build and help people was so energizing for me that like I wouldn't I don't need to be in the classroom to have that but I mistook that satisfaction for being in the classroom, those kinds of conversations. And I, you know, the satisfaction of taking an idea and doing research and publishing on it, like we're gonna partner with the Chronicle of Higher Ed in January and do a survey of graduate student mental health. I would so much rather do that, so much rather do that because it's applied, I get to use my research skills, I get to solve problems, and then I get to write really cool pieces and then people are gonna be mad at me at Twitter and they're gonna yell at me and they'll go like, you know, but like a million people can read the stuff I put out on the Chronicle, they'll get a million hits. I mean, that's, Tell me what scholarship gets that, you know, and that to me is exciting to put my ideas out there. So I'm not saying that your your impulse isn't correct. I'm just saying it, it can be very difficult. And if you dig down into like what's the concern is, you might find other ways to satisfy that uh, desire for intellectual stimulation, conversation, getting your ideas out there, problem solving, like whatever it is in your job and in your work in a way that means that you might not even have to worry about that question. So, you know, you may, but you also may not. So the only thing I would say is like throw, um, just, you know, put a pin in it, explore career options, and then come back to how that would actually look once you know where you're going and what kind of work you're doing. We have one minute left. Any last questions? If not, we'll hang out for a little while. You're all gonna be okay. Yeah, <laughs> you are gonna be okay, yes, for sure. Okay, well thank you so much and please join me in thanking Marin and Julia. Thank you.